My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, July 31st, 2013. That's right, tomorrow's first day of August. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, and listen in context, and compare what popular pastors and preachers and teachers and authors are saying uh, to God's Word. And unfortunately... Uh, there's an epidemic of, let's just say, bad doctrine, false theology, Bible-twisting, narcissistic eisegesis, you know, stuff like that, really kind of nasty, if you would, uh, theological, uh, theologically transmitted diseases, I think is the right way of putting it. So uh, what we do once a week here at Fighting for the Faith is we do what we call our light edition. It's not that the topic is light. It's that uh, what we do is we it's a singular topic, and we've been working our way through a series of uh, le- teaching lectures by Pastor Jeremy Rohde of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California, as he's been working his way exegetically, line by line, verse by verse, verse through uh, the uh, epistle of 1 John. So that's what we're doing today. Uh, grab a pencil, some paper. It's you know, These lectures are fantastic. And uh, we'll just dive right into it. Here's Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Okay, well, let's go ahead and begin today. Um, we're picking up in 1 John uh, toward the end of chapter 2. We had just covered uh, the section that went, uh, you know, chapter or chapter 2, verse 18 through 25, and then uh, that brief section 26 through 27. One thing that we need from that previous section to take with us into the next section in order to understand it is, again, this language of anointing, and the concept of baptism that stands behind it. If you look at chapter 2, verse 20, uh, and by the way, if anyone needs a Bible, does anyone need one? We have some NIVs up here. Anyone need a Bible? Okay, great. Chapter 2, verse 20, John says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One of God. And if you recall from uh, last week, we discussed that word anointed is chrisma. The relationship between that word charisma uh, needs to be made known between charisma and Christos. That's what it means for Jesus to be the anointed one, the Messiah. 
um, so that you are chrismud, you are Christed. That's the anointing he's talking about. In that sense, anointing is, is almost a misleading translation, particularly now that we've had Pentecostalism come and ruin the concept of anointing. But it means that you have been Christed by the Holy One, and you have been chrismed into the Holy One. This takes place in the waters of baptism where you are baptized into Christ, whereas Paul says, all you who have been baptized have been clothed in Christ. Okay, so we see that language of being Christed in baptism in chapter 2, verse 20. We see it again in verse 27. But the chrisma that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone, namely the false teachers, should teach you. But as His chrisma teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Okay, so you are baptized into Christ, abide in Him, abide in Christ. That's the message. Now think about how important that is in this epistle that you abide in Christ. That's the whole point. That you've been baptized into Him, now abide in Him. Why? Because there are those, as we read in chapter 2 verse 19, they went out from us. There are those who went out from us, who did not abide in Christ, who did not abide in their baptism, but went out contrary to the Word of God, teaching contrary to the Word of God, uh, acting in loveless ways, acting in manifestly sinful ways. They did not abide in Him. John is urging his congregation and us to abide in Him again, over and against anyone who would take us out of Him. Okay? Now that brings us into the new section today, chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Okay, so talking about the Lord's final return, that we abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Right? So when the Lord returns on Judgment Day, you know, when the angel shouts and the trumpet blasts and all of a sudden the Lord is here, is it a moment of fear for Christians? Well, you might be startled. I'll probably be startled, right? I mean, these are big things. You don't hear an angel shout and a trumpet blast and Christ return and cosmic happenings every day. So you'll be startled, but not afraid. That's the point that you realize the one who is coming is the one who is your Savior, the one in whom you abide, right? Your life is hidden in Him. You abide in Him and He in you. So that when He comes in the day of judgment, it's not a day of shame for you because you abide in Him. Now, if you're outside of Him, it is a day of shame. If you've rejected Christ, then you've chosen to stand at the judgment seat based on under the law, not under Christ. Uh, you'll be judged on the basis of your works and what you've done, good or evil. Um, and we know that uh, no man is good in his sight. Okay, so the point of abiding is that we abide till that moment of judgment day when Jesus comes so that we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Okay, continuing with verse 29. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Okay, a couple of things to point out. Righteousness does not only mean strict adherence and obedience to the Ten Commandments. In John's Gospel, we've seen righteousness used before, uh, namely in chapter 2, verse 2, uh, excuse me, verse 1. Remember this use of righteousness John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, so part of Jesus' righteousness is being an advocate for sinners before the Father. And John goes on in the next verse to say, He is the propitiation or atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
Okay, so part of his righteousness is covering over sins. So again, let's take John's definition and understanding of righteousness and look at that in terms of verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Righteousness is much more than just a moral obedience to the Ten Commandments. Righteousness is being gracious and merciful and covering sin and forgiving sin, just as our Lord Jesus does. It's a new way of life. Make sense so far? Okay, let's get into the section that doesn't make sense. (laughs) Chapter 3, verse 1 and following. See what kind of love the Father has has given to us that we should be called children of God. Now, the first point I want to just stop here and bring out is that sometimes people and Christians mistakenly think that everyone is a child of God, that the whole human race, we're all God's children. Wrong. Wrong. Well, we are all made in God's image, half right at best. See, Um, okay, that way back in Genesis, we are told that he made Adam and Eve in their image. Then we are told that when they came together and had a child, that child was made in whose image? Adam's. That's the point. The original image, the original righteousness is fallen. It is now a sinful image that we are born into, a human image that we are born into. If you look uh, previously at verse 29, he says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. That's the new birth wherein you become little children. Now in John's gospel, this is his epistle, but in John's gospel, Jesus will say very clearly that to be born again means to be born of water and the Spirit a reference to baptism. To be born of water and the Spirit is to be born again. So here he's talking about born again, that is, baptized people. Then see verse uh, chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of, the fa- of love the Father has given to us. To who? To us who have been born again by water and the Spirit, that we should be called children of God. You see the exclusivity. The baptized are the children of God. Why? Because only in baptism is the image of God placed back on you. And that's the point in Colossians of saying that Christ is the express image and likeness of God. Great, you are baptized into Christ, which means the express image and likeness of God. Christ himself is put over you and you are restored once again to the image of God. And therein you are children of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Now look again at the contrast. Continuing with that verse, the reason why the world knows us is because they are also the children of God. No. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. When the world hates us as Christians for saying, uh, not everyone is the child of God, only one who is baptized into Jesus is a true child of God, that would be scandalous to the ears of the people around us today, to the media, to the interfaith prayer services, to the let's all get along and hold hands and sing Kumbaya, even though we all have different gods, American religion, right? The exclusivity of it that we as baptized Christians alone are the children of God, that Jesus alone is the way to God, that there is no way to come to the Father except through Him. This the world hates, and it will always hate it. And it probably hates it more in America today than ever before, the exclusivity. If you want to see people become, uh, otherwise civilized people become vitriolic, full of hate, Talk about the exclusivity of Christ and the exclusivity of salvation in and through Him. Okay, but John puts it here unabashedly, and I want you to see that this is just a foundational part of New Testament theology. It's a foundational part of who we are as Christians. See what kind of love love the Father has given to us 
that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Now remember back in chapter 2, verse 15, John has already told us, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, and there's the particularity that's given to us to reflect that we are to love the things of the Father, not the things of the world. So that means when we look out at the world, we love in Christ Jesus. We don't love indiscriminately. Okay, uh, any questions on what we've covered so far? All right, let's go a little further. Chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. John here again takes us back to the idea of Jesus coming. Okay? What we will be has not yet appeared. Why? Because who has not appeared? Jesus. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. What does that mean? Be glorified. Just as He is resurrected in His body, we will be resurrected in our bodies. Just as His body is glorious, our bodies will be glorious. Right? Just as He is sinless, we will be sinless. Just as He is true man as God intended, we will also be true men and women for the first time as God intended. When He appears, we will be like Him. That's John's point in this verse. And then look at uh, verse 3, because it's a connected idea. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. This is a fantastic verse. Look at this. And everyone who thus hopes in Him... If you simply hope in Christ, if Christ is your hope, your only hope, then you purify yourself, not just a little bit, not just a lot, but as He is pure. By simply hoping in Christ, you become as pure as Christ Himself. That's what this verse is saying. Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself. How much? As he is pure. As Jesus is pure. Okay? When you put your hope and trust in Christ, when you have place your faith in him, God credits you with the full righteousness of Jesus. And it's no joke. When God looks at you, God sees a saint. God sees a holy one. God sees someone without sin. Because the blood of Jesus has blotted out all your sins and all your transgressions. Okay? So we have this wonderful promise that uh, it's not by works, it's not by anything we do or don't do, it's not by any level of holiness of life. Everyone who thus hopes in Jesus purifies himself as Jesus is pure. Okay? Now we need to cling to that verse as we go into what's next, chapter 3, verses 4 and following. Okay? Yes? Uh, what speaks of sanctification? Uh, well, sanctification in the biblical sense, in the wide sense, meaning justification, that's what verse 3 is about. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Paul would say, by, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That would be Paul's way of saying that verse. Now, what follows next is uh, much more in the narrow definition of sanctification, um, looking at what is the... Because you abide in Christ and are in Christ and are pure as He is pure, what does your life look like? Okay? That's what comes next in the, verses 4 and following. Okay? Let's, uh, let's go into those verses unless there are other questions or comments right now. Yeah? Yes, right. <coughs> Right, that's the point of that verse, is that it doesn't matter, it's not up to you. Right, 
You simply, I mean, in fact, that's the idea of hope. If it's up to you, if you can do anything to save yourself, if you can do anything to purify yourself, then you don't need hope. Get busy is what you need, right? Um, but since get busy, no matter how many times you're told that, isn't going to be enough to get you pure, you have no hope but to hope in Christ. And simply by hoping in Christ, that hope is credited to you as righteousness. Okay, let's get into uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, the point of this verse is everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. To devote oneself to sin to uh, go about life in such a way that you actually pervert the gospel as the very thing that gives you permission to sin. Okay, This is what's being condemned in these verses. Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? Absolutely. Not. Right, thank you. Okay, just making sure everyone's awake. All right, absolutely not. Yeah. Okay, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Now, what's the point of this lawlessness? It, it heightens, it embellishes the, the, the previous phrase, makes a practice of sinning. But in, specifically, uh, in specific, when you look at the concept of lawlessness, the law is an external norm, an external thing that tells you this is good, this is right. The, the Ten Commandments are the law codified, Right? When you make a practice of sinning, when you say, I'm going to make a practice of going against one or more of the commandments and I don't really care, um, then you are uh, essentially falling into or practicing lawlessness because you're saying God's word, God's law doesn't matter. Now, there are uh, many Christians who fall into this, um, probably not least of which our own uh, brothers and sisters by name and nothing more, really, in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the ELCA, um, they become lawless by saying, by, by pinning the law and the gospel against one another in this way. Okay, The law, the Word of God, uh, condemns homosexuality, for example. But, you know, after all, we're all sinners, so who are you to cast stones? So the gospel forgives that. So, you know, homosexuality really isn't a sin. Um, it's not a big deal. Okay, do you see how making a practice of sin is tantamount to lawlessness because it takes the law of God and throws it away, casts it aside? So that's a corporate public manifestation of making a practice of sinning and practicing lawlessness. As John says, sin is lawlessness. Now here's the point. Look at verse 5. You know that He, that is Jesus, appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. What's Jesus' relationship to sin? He came to get rid of it, and in Him there's no sin at all, and He wants you in Him. What part does Jesus have to do with sin? What part does light have to do with darkness? No part at all. So to insist that, well, you know, uh, I'm good at sinning and Jesus is good at forgiving, this is a match made in heaven, is to totally misunderstand who Jesus is. He came to take away sin. He came to, uh, to take away sin and in Him there is no sin. All right? He is uh, anti-sin. And you know, you go back to chapter 2, verse 1 that we just uh, looked at. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Right? That you may not sin. It's a disease within Christendom when we don't take sin seriously. It's a disease in Christendom when we don't look at these words of, of Jesus, these words of John, seriously, and we say, oh, I'm just forgiven so I can just go on sinning. Look at John's words. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 
You know that Jesus appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. So then verse 6, no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. Aha! So the holiness sects have it right. We all reach a point where we finally stop sinning, right? Wrong. Back in chapter 1, okay, let's do good exegesis. Let's see what John has already taught us. Back in chapter 1, take a look at verse 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Okay, so compare those two verses. You know, chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. Now look at chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Is John here contradicting himself? Is John here teaching that uh, in the first place we must confess our sins, in the second place we must not have any sins at all? No, that's not what John is after. When John says in chapter 3, verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning, he is talking. he's not talking about... Uh, Uh, sins that we fall into by weakness. He is talking about making a practice of sinning that destroys faith, that destroys your Christian identity, that contradicts the Scriptures. Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? Or, uh, as Luther points out, this verse is in keeping with Romans 6.12. Even if we sin, Romans 6.12 says this, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its desires. You see, even though we have sin still clinging to us, even though we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, there's a difference. Sin cannot be allowed to reign in us. Now, that's according to Paul. In John's words, no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning, that is, allows sin to reign. In Galatians 5.24, Paul writes, Those who belong to Christ crucify the flesh with its passions and its desires. Those who belong to Christ crucify the flesh with its passions and its desires. So what marks a Christian is not the absence of sin, but the hatred of that sin. The desire to crucify and put to death that sin. The desire to have God's law as a mirror before us, to look at the sin in our life, to cast it off the throne of our heart, to crucify it and put it to death every single day. In the words of Luther, through baptism, to daily drown the old Adam in us. Not make friends with the old Adam, not compromise with sin, not take it lightly, not assume, well, Jesus has forgiven me, so it's okay. That's not in keeping with the Christian ethos. Okay, so, uh, you know, we've got, we've got these wonderful words of Luther that I'll read for you. And this is Luther commenting on this section. He says, We are all sinners, and now and then we fall into sin. But if a true Christian falls, he soon comes back and turns about and fights against sin lest it burst forth into a stumbling block for his neighbor. Although it is difficult to avoid being wounded in war, yet it is an honor to stand up, but it is a disgrace to yield. Thus, even if a Christian is surrounded by sin, yet he fights against sin. There are Christians who think they are Christians because they have been baptized. They relax the reins. They are not concerned about conquering sins, but they follow their lusts. To commit sin is to follow the impulse and the desire to sin. Many give free reign. They do not want to repent or to rise again. Today they commit adultery, tomorrow they want to purify themselves. It is impossible for them not to offend their neighbors. If not in a positive way, certainly in a negative way, by not giving their neighbor his due. For the other part of Christianity is love. But love does not insist on its own way. Insisting on one's own way is not loving one's neighbor, but following one's own desires. Therefore, not to have love 
is to be guilty of lawlessness. He who does not purify himself, who does not battle against himself every day, yields to sin and is guilty of lawlessness. Okay, so what is, what is Luther saying? What is John saying? What is Paul saying? The point is that there is constantly to be a war within us. Constantly to be a new and daily hatred arising within us over our sin. That's the point. All right, we are going to pause the lecture right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at piratechristian. Quick break. When we come back, the balance of today's uh, lecture on the Epistle of First John. Don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We will be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, <sighs> sacked the choir, and put Damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose uh, uh, vision. Okay. And, okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that!
Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember... A portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Hello, I'm Brandon House of WorldviewRadio.com. WorldviewRadio.com is the world's premier biblical worldview online radio network. And now you can take it with you on the go with our free app that you can download free of charge at WorldviewWeekend.com forward slash APP. That's WorldviewWeekend.com forward slash APP. And you'll hear the daily and weekly radio programs by people like T.A. McMahon of The Brian Call, Chris Rosebro of Fighting for the Faith, Usama Dakdok and The Truth About Islam, Noise of Thunder with Chris Pinto, Justin Peters and the Justin Peters Program, Crosstalk, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and Prophecy Today, Jesse Johnson with the Bible Teaching Program of Emmanuel, Dr. John Whitcomb, and Mike Gendron of Proclaiming the Gospel Radio, as well as Carl Tycrib with Forcing Change Radio. All of these biblically-based radio programs are available free of charge at worldviewradio.com and through our free app at worldviewweekend.com forward slash app. Biblical Worldview Radio that you can take with you on the go. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if you're not getting this kind of great, in-depth, biblical teaching from your pastor because he's too busy casting vision or something like that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly, truly cannot do what we're doing here Without it. All right, here is the balance of today's uh, walk through uh, first epistle of John, uh, the part six in the series. Here's Jeremy Rohde. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse seven Little children, let no one deceive you. It's as if John knows that people are going to try to deceive you on this issue. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as Jesus is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, sin included. No one born of God, no one baptized, makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Okay? By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Okay? So, is this a challenging section to us? Absolutely. Does it negate anything that John has previously said? No way. It only strengthens it. What John has previously said is, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
So we trust that. We trust that He will cleanse us. We have seen that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. We know that's true. We have grabbed hold of this verse in chapter 3, verse 3, that everyone who hopes in Jesus purifies himself as Jesus himself is pure. What John says next doesn't negate any of that at all. It flows from that, and it encourages us to have a white and black attitude toward our sin, to hate our sin, and to daily rise to crucify and drown our old Adam. And that's the Christian life. Anyone who gives up on that and lets sin reign and says, I don't care, whatever, um, that person can no longer call himself a Christian. That Christian is, as our book of Concord would say, in mortal sin. Because the sin has so taken hold that it now reigns in that person. It is conquered and choked out faith, and now it is reigning in that person. That person needs to be reconverted, just as David needed to be reconverted when, uh, oh gosh, who's the prophet? Nathan. Nathan went and spoke to him and gave him the parable of the sheep. Do you remember that? And David pronounces judgment unwittingly on himself and uh, says, whoever has done this shall surely die. And Nathan says, that man is you. David repents, and it's that point that David uh, writes Psalm 51 in which he says, Create in me a clean heart and renew in me a right spirit. He also says, Take not thy Holy Spirit away from me. Okay? Because he realizes that what he's done is cast it out the Holy Spirit, cast it out faith, acted in a way that betrays everything God has declared him to be. He's asking God to create in him a new heart and restore him again, to reconvert him back so that he continues to battle and war against his sinful flesh. I see a hand. Yes. Pastor, this seems to me like, um, and I, I'm sure I'm wrong, but I, I mean, we've been told, we've been brought up in, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we have, we have sin, we are full of sin, but this almost implies a level of sin. Like we're going to have our day to day sins. Yeah, that's true. But if we have a really bad sin, we've got to fight against it. Is that what it's saying? Is there a level of sin or is this, it does seem contradictory. It doesn't say there's a level of sin, um, but that there are two different kinds of sin. Okay. There's sin that is at a stage or at a point that is not destroying or casting out faith. And there is sin that is at a stage or point that is destroying and casting out faith. Okay. Take a concrete biblical example. First uh, Corinthians 5. You have the man who's in the church in Corinth, right? And he's committing egregious uh, sexual sin. And yet he continues to attend the church in Corinth. Why? Ah, Jesus died for this too. Who cares if I sleep with my stepmother or whoever it was, right? He is, sin has so taken over that it has made his faith a hypocrisy and sham. Now, Paul recognizes this right away. Who doesn't recognize this? The Corinthian congregation. Why? Just as this man is saying, oh, Christ is so gracious to forgive me even if I go on sinning. It's great. I'll go on sinning and His grace will abound. It's perfect. And the Corinthian congregation goes, oh yeah, we're so gracious. We are the most gracious Christ-centered church on earth. We're going to let Him go on sinning so that grace can abound too. This is wonderful. We are so mature in the faith. We are so Christ-centered. To which Paul offers them a huge slapdown in that epistle, but then not least of which he says, that man must be cast out, excommunicated, handed over to Satan. Why? So that he can come to repentance, so that he can acknowledge the hypocrisy that sin is reigning in his heart and it has cast out his faith. Now we read in 2 Corinthians then, that it's very likely that this man did repent, that that was the wake-up call he needed. And he's brought back and he's restored and he's forgiven and he's welcomed back into the community. So biblically, the concept that one falls into, not a different level of sin, like, like you know, uh, if you commit, if you break the, the Ten Commandments 6 through 10, you're okay, 
But one through five, oh, oh, that's real bad. No, not a level like that, but a level like this, that it's one thing to fall into a, a sudden fit of rage. It's one thing to stumble and be angry, scream, yell, <laughs> fake like you're going to kick the dog, right? Um, it's one thing to fall into, into that type of sin. It's another thing to let anger take you over to where you become a bitter, angry person who has no time for anything, least of all the gospel, least of all. I mean, you may sit in church, you may hear it, but who are you? I am angry. That cannot happen in a Christian. And it's, it is uh, good pastoral care and good love for one another as fellow Christians to point that out and to bring that person to repentance. And now if that person acknowledges, you know, look, my anger is way out of control and I need help and I confess it as a sin and I want Christ's forgiveness and I keep going into it, and I keep falling into it, I want help, I want forgiveness, that person is... A Christian. That person is like every one of us. That person who says, I could care less, I'm over it. This is who I am. This is the way I am. Well, you've just contradicted every promise that God has given you who says, no, you are my child. No, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. No, that's not the way you are. It's the way your old Adam is, and you should be drowning him and crucifying him. Does that make sense, Alice? Yeah. Yes. Sin reigning uh, is a term that you use, and it seems to uh, imply some level or frequency. Is this a habitual sin um, that is, reoccurs at a certain rate, or how, how do you define reigning, and then what is the process? You confess that, but if you're doing it three times a day... Three times a day is okay, but not two. No, I'm just joking. Um, that's... Uh, yeah, no, we don't want to. We don't want to try to quantify this or necessarily even qualify this. Um, the concept of sin reigning in you, as much as I'd like to take credit for it, not mine. The Holy Spirit inspired Saint Paul to write, "Do not let sin reign in your mortal body." You see, so it's a biblical concept to not let sin reign in your mortal body. When sin reigns in your mortal body. It takes you to a state of impenitence. That's when it's raining. I mean, that's really the trigger, is you're talking about impenitence. And you're not talking about the general hardness of heart where we all say, oh, I am heartily sorry. No, you're not. Okay. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a specific reigning of the sin where the sin becomes impenitent to where you say, if it's wrong, I don't care it's wrong. Wait a minute. Who are you to say it's wrong? No, it's probably not wrong. It's probably right. I'm justified in this. Right? That's the way that the thing progresses. You see, uh, I mean, you see some sins like this progress over the life cycle of, of people. It's very sad. Sometimes you see it in yourself. Um, it starts out that you're horrified by something you've done. And as you make a practice of sinning, in John's language, as you do it again, you feel less guilty and less guilty and less guilty, and then pretty soon you're sure, you start to say, I'm not sure it's really wrong, or it's not all that wrong relative to everything else. In other words, you start justifying it, and then pretty soon you start to say, ah, it's neutral, it's not really wrong, it's, you know, whatever. And then, and then you go past the point of it being neutral, and you start advocating for it. It's right, it's good, who are you to judge me? Who is the Bible to judge me? And that's the final manifestation of the hardness of heart. Who can save a person that's gone down that road all the way? The same person who can save a sinner like you or me, because we've all gone down that road in one way or another, and that's God. And that's His Word that breaks down that stony heart to where you are so sure that you were right and justified, and now you're not so sure. And now you're brought to repentance. And now God is teaching you to hate that sin by showing the devastation that it caused in you, in your spirit, and the people around you, the harm that it did. And pretty soon, instead of loving and advocating for that sin, you're hating it, and you're despising it. And you're going to church just to hear a word of gospel kick your sin in the face. Right? 
and you're listening to the sermon like, give me some gospel. That's right. See, I'm forgiven. See, that sin has no dominion over me. That's the point. When we let go, when we acquiesce, when we say, ah, it's all right, let sin reign in your body, Christ reigns too, um, what we end up doing is we end up killing people spiritually. Killing them spiritually. And that's been a move of uh, the church bodies. As they go liberal, they start to de-sin sin. And they start to have a lackadaisical attitude towards sin. That's not Lutheran, as you heard Luther himself say. And it's certainly not biblical, as you hear John, as you hear Paul say over and over again. I mean, Jesus, even after he's done some of his most wonderful work, forgiving or healing and forgiving, what does he say to the person? Go and sin all you want. My forgiveness is never-ending. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. That's his attitude. Now, does Jesus, who knows all things, know sure, sure well that that person's going to fall into sin? Yeah. And is his blood and forgiveness going to cover that too? Yeah. But you don't tell someone, hey, go jump into sin. You don't tell yourself, hey, you're forgiven. Go do as you please. You, you tell someone or you tell yourself, go and sin no more. Because why? Because Jesus appeared to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. That's the point. Okay, and so to be born of God, to be a baptized person, born of water and the Spirit, sin is incompatible. The identity that God has given you, the deepest identity, deeper than your, you know, your first name is your identity within a family. And your last name identifies you in your earthly family. When you are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is your cosmic family. That is the deepest level of who you are. Your baptismal identity. And so sin is simply incompatible with that identity. Now, what does that mean? As a baptized person, you are going to your whole life long be saying with St. Paul, the good that I want to do, I end up not doing. But I still want to do the good. I don't give up on wanting to do the good. I still want to do it. It's just the truth is I don't end up doing it. The evil that I don't want to do, that I end up doing. I still call it evil. I still don't want to do it. I still strive against it. I end up falling into it. Who will save me from this body of death? I thank God through Christ Jesus, my Lord, right? So the point is that in us Christians, there has to be a war. If in the words of John, you have made a practice of sinning, then there's no more war, right? You've given in and given over to it. You have to be reconverted. That law of God has to smack you between the eyes. There's probably no better place in all of Scripture, that, at least the New Testament, than this place right here to smack you between the eyes. Because you see that John does it for your good, and he does it without taking anything away from Christ, without taking anything away from your forgiveness, without taking anything away from the hope that you have in you that purifies you just as he is pure. Make sense? Any questions? Comments? I expected a whole lot of, you know, heat and uh, fire because, you know, this is a, this is a controversial one. Um, the other argument that we've heard in other churches is that the Old Testament is full of um, cultural differences that don't apply in our time. I'm not so sure that's true. No, uh, well, in the you know in the Old Testament, you have to distinguish between the types of law. You know, there's uh, there's civil law that God gave just to govern the people of Israel for a time, and it's been put away. And in the New Testament, it's not enjoined upon anyone. And that's where Obama shows himself to be biblically illiterate when he uh, quotes some uh, civil law in Deuteronomy and says, well, we ignore this, so therefore we can ignore whatever he wants, right? That's, I mean, that's complete ignorance and poor exegesis. We only ignore the civil law because it was given solely to Israel and has now been put away. Same with the ceremonial law, that which governed the temple, uh, Leviticus, right? That's no longer binding on us. It was given to Israel and it's put away. But what remains binding on us from the Old Testament is the moral law, the Ten Commandments. 
And we know that because every single one of the Ten Commandments is repeated in the New Testament. The only one not repeated verbatim by Jesus and His apostles is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy because they're simply moving that to the Lord's day, to the eighth day, Sunday instead of Saturday. But that concept is there as the author of Hebrews says, do not forsake gathering together as some have done. So it's, it's understanding that it, the Old Testament, we have to read it dynamically, wisely, with good exegesis, with good theology. We understand that the moral law of the Old Testament abides. You know, uh, the civil law does not. Homosexuality that's condemned in the Old Testament abides. That's the moral law. The civil law that says that a homosexual must be put to death, that was given to Israel for a specific time in a specific place. It no longer abides. It's not carried through in the New Testament. Make sense? Yeah. Dave? Since you dropped the gauntlet, I'm going to throw one at you. Um, all right. Th- this week, uh, I-, I struggle with this all the time with the homosexual issue because the church I used to belong to, ELCA, ALC, yeah obviously has that issue, and my home church left because of that issue. I went to LCMC, but we got the problem of biblical law versus civic law, and looking at one of the definitions of lawlessness is the uh, lack of civic order that happens because of the practice of sin. Um, I was with a gentleman that I helped build a Boy Scout camp in Irvine with this week. He's in the conversation nationally about the Boy Scouts allowing homosexual leaders. And he pulled me aside and actually asked me what my opinion was, and I gave it to him, and he said, well, I don't quite agree with you. We're not a religious organization. I was kind of surprised he was taking the opposite view, but he said we're going to lose all our members if we don't define ourselves um, for the future because the younger generation, I hear this a lot too, talking to my son son about it, really don't have a problem with the... uh, sexual orientation issue and don't want to really care to hear about what somebody's sexual orientation. And I agree at a certain level of that. But in practice, it doesn't work very well. It's pretty messy. So I'm, I'm just wondering, as a, as a Christian and as a citizen and as a former, not a former Boy Scout, I am one, um, you know, how do you handle this thing? It's pretty, it's, it's not it is clear cut, but it's hard because you're dealing with cultural issues as well as biblical issues. The organization is not a religious one like we are in here, mm-hmm. but it is a civic one. And I think the pro- we're, we're, we're actually handling fire here. Uh, it appears to me, I'd just like to get your comments on that, you know, in, in uh, looking at these verses, especially about lawlessness. Sure. I don't have any, uh, any specific uh, wonderful and great wisdom on the Boy Scout situation. And to be honest with you, I think it would be a stretch trying to take what John is saying to Christians and to a Christian congregation and push that into uh, the Boy Scout homosexuality issue. I will make this comment and steal uh, a note from Mark Jason, who was here yesterday, did a wonderful talk on evangelism. He's coming back, so if you get a chance to see him, it's just it's absolutely worth it. And he's an entertaining guy, and it's fantastic. But he talks about how he is engaging the younger generation, you know, as the campus pastor on UCLA, and how he's in, engaging a generation that, that no longer views homosexuality as... Uh, not even as sinful, but as potentially destructive to a society. Um, when um, Mark Jasa was asked, um, what is the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod position on homosexuality? Um, he said he gave the wrong answer at first, but after thinking about it, he came up with the right answer. And I think he's got the right answer. And his answer is, They are forgiven. They are forgiven. That ought to be our message to the homosexual community, to homosexual individuals. You are forgiven. Now, how can you say that? How can you say that, right? Because Christ is the atoning sacrifice, as we read in John chapter 2, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. So our message of the gospel is to go out and say, Christ is the atoning sacrifice for you. You are forgiven. 
Now, don't expect to be met with, oh, wonderful, uh, from the homosexual community or from anyone else. Why? Implicit in the word forgiven is what? It's a sin. You can't say forgiven unless sin, right? That's why sometimes when my wife says, I forgive you, I get irked. (laughs) Because I was willing to apologize for it as long as it's not really a sin. But when she says, I forgive you, I go, what? You know, because, because what is that? It's a, you're acknowledging that it's a sin if it's forgiven. Um, so expect that reaction when you go out to the world to say you are forgiven. Um, but, that's, but that's our message as those who know that Christ is the atoning sacrifice, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, to go out and proclaim you are forgiven. Now, that's our right-hand kingdom duty, and I'm a right-hand kingdom guy, and so that's, that's what I have to tell you today. Um, like I said, when it comes to the left-hand kingdom and non-religious corporations and how all that works, I'm not the best guy to tell you. So, And just tell you that it's, it's our duty as Christians in the left-hand kingdom to stand up for uh, what's right and what's wrong and to try to reflect God's natural law uh, codified in the Ten Commandments and to try to reflect that into the community and culture. So that would probably put a Christian in most instances in an antagonistic position toward uh, uh, homosexual leadership in any type of position, particularly when it's like, I mean, it's just so bizarre. Why, why give someone leadership on the basis of their sexuality? Why even have this conversation on the basis of their sexuality? It's a pretext for an underlying conversation, I think. All right, Bob. Yeah, we'll get back on track here. But that was very interesting, Dave. (laughs) Um, Back on on the subject of um, the tension between being forgiven or uh, justified and and still yet a sinner, uh, our accusers or our uh, some of our critics often say that we are, number one, weak on sanctification and cheap and have cheap grace. Uh, do you have a comment on those critics or um, those criticisms? I would, I would say that there is some potential for criticism that uh, all of Christianity is threatened by uh, going soft on sin. And um, by looking at sin as if, well, since we're going to be sinners until the day we die, it must not be that big of a deal. Um, that is, that's just an alien view to the New Testament scriptures. It's just not anywhere in the New Testament. There's not a single jot or tittle in the New Testament scriptures that say, uh, you know, eh, take it easy. Um, ah, sin, not a big deal. Uh, every, every single verse that talks about Christ is talking about he in whom there is no sin, who has come to take away sin, who would first and foremost tell you, do not sin, and then if you do, he will lead you to repentance and forgiveness to undo that sin and the effects of it. Um, So to be friends with sin is to be friends with the world. So, you know, I understand that there's a time and a place to make the confession that we are weak on sanctification. There's a time and place not to. Um, as as far as cheap grace goes, you know, you can you can handle that any way you want, but I I kind of prefer saying it's not cheap, it's free. Um, that's what grace is. Or you can go the other way and, you know, depending on your circumstance and say, cheap? When's the last time you read the Passion account? Right? Because um, it, it costs Christ everything and cost Him the punishment for the sins of the world. Every single sin, right? That's not cheap. So you can go that way with it too. Okay. Please forgive me. <laughs> um, yeah, this is a rough spot back here. Um, we um, we're so willing to to look at Adam and Eve and say the devil lied to Eve and said this is not going to hurt you. This is just fine. And yet. Today, and the polarization amazes me from when I was young and, you know, civically, as we talked about, it seemed to be in concert with our belief. And now we're just so polarized because the world would tell us sin isn't sin. 
And yet that's just the old lie. That's the old lie that was given to Eve. This isn't sin. God told you not to do it, but he didn't mean it. And we we just keep falling into it. And now if I dare say that to my coworker who's gay, she said to me, well, God doesn't want us to lie. That's that's not scriptural either. We're not supposed to lie about who we are. That's I mean, true. But, but see, there's the question, who we are. Yeah. That's the question. You know, and and so that's the place where I would stop her is, wait a minute, we're not supposed to lie, I agree, about who we are. The question is, who are you? You know, and um, so so I'm a heterosexual and I, you know, and I haven't had a homosexual thought in my life. Great. But I but I have heterosexual sins because Jesus says whoever looks at another woman with lust in his eyes has already committed adultery with her. Right. Well, I don't want to be dishonest. It's who I am. So I guess I'm just an adulterer and I may as well relish that. No way. I'm going to confess against who I am until my dying day. As a heterosexual, I'm going to confess against myself to my dying day. Because who I am is not an adulterer. Who I am is a Christian who's crucifying the adulterer in me, right? And that's the same with a homosexual person. Who you are uh, as a homosexual person is one for whom God has sent his son, Jesus, one for whom God wants to uh, redeem and restore. And once that homosexual person is converted by God's word and becomes a Christian, then you look at that homosexual person and you say, you're just like me. You're going to confess against yourself and your sexuality until the day you die, just like me, a heterosexual will. Let's confess against ourselves together until the day we die and God restores us. Right? Um, Because the identity of a person is not... Uh, an adulterer, the identity of a person is not um, a homosexual. The identity goes deeper than that. It's one who has been redeemed by God. That's the deepest identity. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.